Hi guys, just a little disclaimer before we get started on today's episode, um, just to reiterate that the contents obtained and listened to from this podcast is um, for informational purposes only. Any text, graphics, images, or information used on any other platform is for informational purposes only. The content is not intended to substitute for professional med- medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of a physician or qualified health provider with any questions you have before embarking on any of the practices explained within this episode. The original full recording ended up being over three hours long. So what I've done is I've split it up into two portions. Uh, This first part one segment of guest interview number six with Dr. Dean St. Mart will discuss an introduction into uh, pharmacology. It will discuss the endocrinology of muscle growth itself, and it will have an introduction in full to testosterone uh, and its many mechanisms within the body. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Muscle Mentors podcast. I am sat here with Luke and our next guest speaker. Um, This is actually a rerun of this podcast. We've already recorded it, but we're going to record it again to make it even better. Um, just because the signal was was poor with the Wi-Fi last time. But there may be segments that I may swap in and out from both podcasts because both were very, very good. Um, first of all, Luke, how are you? I am good, sir. Very good. Um, this is guest episode speaker number six. I am sat here virtually with Dr. Dean St. Mart. Dean, how are you? I'm good, Callum. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast today. I'm getting very used to Dean's face. We're speaking almost daily now. (laughs) Um, So just in terms of how today is going to run, obviously last episode we we ran through the whole thing. We're going to run through the whole thing again today. Um, This is basically going to be an introduction into um, pharmacology and from what people will already know about Dean, um, he's very well rehearsed and educated on this front, um, both from a literature perspective, but also conducting his own um, kind of clinical research as well. Um, and he's very well known in the industry, and I have no doubt he'll be world-renowned rel- relatively soon based on the work he's doing now. So um, just give us an introduction into who you are, Dean, for people that don't know what you do, um, and just kind of an introduction into where you've had your education and, and what's formed in the past. Okay, so it all started with a BSc in chemistry, a double honours degree in chemistry and pharmaceutical chemistry from the National University of Ireland, Minute. So there I finished top of the university and received two scholarships to pursue a PhD. So the PhD then followed on in synthetic organic chemistry with fluorescent spectroscopy, where we synthesized a new class of fluorescent molecules and basically studied them for potential use of in vitro diagnostics. So basically, all in the background during that, I was a kickboxer <clears throat> and that led to actually winning the world championships in 2010 but an accident in kickboxing led to me smashing bones in my ankles so that sort of put kickboxing on the back burner so that followed into bodybuilding as I was using training in the gym and strength training as a, a supplement to my kickboxing training and I've just been fascinated with bodybuilding since my early teens. So it just seemed like the logical step to try and pursue perhaps going into competitive bodybuilding. 
So I've been competing ever since 2011. And I competed every year up until last year. I've represented Ireland at the IFBB European Championships in 2013. And I also represented them at the WFF NABA World Championships in 2016. <clears throat> Most people probably be aware if I am either through social media on Instagram or as one of the Train by JP educators. So I'm part of Jordan Peters' team where daily I interact on his forum answering questions on health, supplementation and pharmacology. And in terms of, in terms of your day-to-day -day now, Dean, what, what's the day-to-day -day for you right now, apart from obviously your, your heavy interactions with Jordan, um, trained by JP, and uh, tell us about supplement needs as well. I'm also the formulator with supplement needs. So <clears throat> in April, I was asked to join supplement needs team as the formulator for the supplement line of products. So since then, we've supplement, uh, formulated several supplements which are geared towards ideally taking care of bodybuilders' health. So a lot of people are probably aware of who I am through the development of the sleep stack. Yeah, so we put together. The, the, so it's basically sold out every time I go on the website, so it must be doing well. <laughs> yeah. So I basically fired over. This is how it, it actually the interaction began. I was using supplement needs for buying supplements for the last year. And then when I seen their own line of products, I messaged the owner, Lee, and I said, I've got this idea for a sleep stack. And I'm fairly confident that it works because I've trialed the combination and several people I've helped. So when I fired it over to him, he said, oh, this looks promising. So we got in touch with a manufacturer. And like you said, ever since it's been released, it's sold out. Mm -hmm. So I think the next phase I want to do is cater for an all-in-one because a lot of people say that opening and closing of six tubs every night is a bit annoying. Yeah, it's, it's such. I think it's it's. We, me and Luke have spoken about this before about, you know, if you're having a for people that are going to supplement with these things, especially to support health markers and sleep, the amount of different sources you have to go through and different brands you have to buy to pick up, you know, specific ingredients that are going to be worthwhile. Having that all under one roof would be, you know, incredible. Yeah, no, that that's exactly my vision for supplement needs is to have a brand which will cater for a bodybuilder's health and that they're not having to chase on Amazon X, Y, and Z product from different brands, different manufacturers. At least we can guarantee that it's all manufactured in a GMP facility and we can guarantee the potency and the quality of the product. Mm. Um, the whole concept also then behind that sleep stack originally was one of the ingredients is 5-HTP. So, if a person has taken the likes of um, SSRIs for depression or um, dopamine receptor blockers, you don't want to give them extra 5-HTP because it's just going to make them more aggressive. So the whole concept behind the stack was that if someone was taking these medications, they'd in theory have enough serotonin and could drop the 5-HTP. So going forward, the, the combo product will be one with 5-HTP, and then there'll be the option to get a combo product without 5-HTP.
But that was the whole idea behind having stacks. So with the sleep stack, when you order that, are they, in, are they individually packed then or is it all in one blend? No, at the moment it's six tubs, six individual right. tubs. Okay. Yeah. But I think, uh, like I was saying, people are sort of laughing at the concept of having to open and close six tubs and take six different tablets out. So hopefully we've nailed down a manufacturer who will do it as a three capsule serving with okay. everything inside. Yeah. Because one, one, I've started, well, I've been using probably for the last three or four months, the um, support max from Strom. Um, and ever since you told me about the uh, glutathione from Supplement Needs, I've ordered some of that as well. Um, but the, support, the concept of the support max where you've got six or seven different things that you'd all buy individually anyway in four capsules, like it's, it's, you know, it's so convenient. Yeah, and I think it's great that, we have access to companies like Strom and Supplement Needs now where there's a, a goal of exactly what we were saying of having brands who are catering specifically for bodybuilders mm. and not necessarily putting profits first because I'm actually good friends with Richard and from speaking to him, the markup on Support Max isn't great. But yeah, he still puts the product out because of how he believes in taking care of people. It's cheap, it's cheap for what you get. It's very cheap. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that that's exactly the same um, goal that we have with supplement needs is people sell first and if there's a slight profit off that, then brilliant. Yeah. But in today's age, because of there's such a lack of focus, and we'll probably get into that discussion later on, towards keeping control of health markers, we need to make things as affordable as and as accessible to people. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Perfect. Um, so just in terms of the introduction for today, the reason why we wanted to do this podcast was it's, it's typically a very um, shied away, pushed under the table topic, but the prevalence of drug use within the industry and within the sport, obviously from a bodybuilding perspective, from a growing muscle perspective, both general pop, and people competing within um, the divisions worldwide, the, the use of this is, is prevalent now, more often than not. Um, and the goal here to get Dean on the podcast, we're gonna do a, a multiple series podcast with him, talking about different areas of you know, exogenous hormone use and the interactions within the body and the health implications, trying to equip people with some baseline knowledge to actually look at this from more of a logical perspective, as opposed to having this kind of severe stigma around the topic um and i think the, the only reason why there is a you know there's there's a label on the word steroids or, or gear because people are uneducated and they don't understand the concepts of how this is interacting in the body how to use this appropriately and how to look after themselves whilst they're using it the re the, the gray area there is what's causing the concern and what's causing the the kind of um the, the stigma so Give us an introduction, Dean, in terms of just the baseline introduction into endocrinology and muscle growth. So what are the key players that we're looking at and what are the key players that are going to be coming up later down the line when we, when we continue this discussion? Okay, so if we're looking at endocrinology in the concept of muscle growth, we're basically looking at the regulation of anabolism and catabolism. So that's either increase in protein synthesis or stopping protein breakdown so then that we're looking at five key hormones so again endocrinology the study of hormones we have testosterone 
growth hormone, IGF-1, which is insulin growth factor 1, insulin itself, and then glucocorticoids, which would be the likes of cortisol, which people have come to know it as. Um, then we have two secondary hormones which play into muscle growth or anabolism, and they'd be estrogen and thyroid hormone. So if we take, for example, testosterone, or what we've also known them as androgens, they're diverse biologically um, compounds which either have actions on reproductive tissue or non-reproductive tissue. So we obviously know that androgens are involved in um, sexual characteristic development, but also they have actions secondary on the likes of muscle tissue growth. Um, a lot of people then, when we're talking about the endocrinology of muscle growth, we're generally always focusing on androgens, but we may secondary then look at the likes of growth hormone. But a lot of people, again, disregard growth hormone as an anabolic agent, possibly because of the minimal response that we see directly from growth hormone supplementation. However, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily not anabolic, that we can see secondary effects from it through the stimulation of producing more IGF-1 or locally um, what we've known as mechanogrowth factor, MGF, which is normally expressed within the muscle tissue. The other two, estrogen and thyroid hormone. Estrogen, we don't really understand how it's involved in anabolism, there's very little studies done, but we do know that the eastern receptor is expressed on muscle tissue. So there must be some transient interaction during um, androgen receptor activation via estrogen also. Um, and then obviously thyroid hormone then will play into all the metabolic upregulation that's required to yield um, how can I say this to basically aid in any of the, the metabolic processes for um, when we consume food for example yeah obviously they're, they're all factors within the body that we will you know, be able to synthesize endogenously, but now we've got more advanced with pharmacology and, you know, pharmacological um, advancement, we can then synthesize them exogenously as well. So we, we're able to control a lot of these things internally by putting them in the body ourselves. When we look at that, to, to break that down in terms of the interactions that these guys will have in the body when they're put in at super physiological doses, just give me an introduction in terms of like foundational pharmacology and why we're introducing this concept and what it's, what it's going to allow us to do. What does it mean? Okay, so this is one of the great reasons why I've come on the podcast in that a lot of people don't really understand this concept. They just think that it's a matter of put X, Y into your body and you'll yield Z results. So basically, what is pharmacology? Pharmacology is the study of how substances interact with living organisms to produce a change of function. So that could be either endogenously 
produced substances or it could be exogenous. So we are administering it externally. We can break that down into different subsets. So we have drug composition. So how the drug is made for looking at an externally produced drug, its properties and its interactions, its toxicology. So how toxic it may be to a living organism or its therapeutic range. That follows into looking at then how we can use certain compounds for therapy or medicinal applications. And again, we'll get into that later on. That a lot of the exogenous hormones that are being used today were actually developed as therapeutics rather than as ergogenic aids. Mm. Then we can break down pharmacology into two subfields, and they are pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. So pharmacokinetics, we're looking at how the drug moves through the body. And pharmacodynamics, we're looking at the relationship between a certain serum concentration of the drug versus its therapeutic effect. So if we look at the pharmacokinetics, how a drug moves through the body, we can basically break that down into an acronym, which is five letters, and that is L-A-D-M-E. So liberation, absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion. We can then further break that down into two subsections of a drug input, so how the drug is put into the body, and then the drug output, how the drug is removed from the body. So within drug inputs, we'll have the likes of liberation and absorption. So liberation will be how the drug is released from its dosage form. So if, for example, we administer via an injection as a depot, how it's actually released into the body from that injection site. Just to give us, just before you go on to that topic, just give us an, just a brief summary of how are these hormones create, you know, bound in oil solutions in the first place? Like we're injecting this depot solution, like what is in that solution? How is that, how is that synthesized in a lab? So how a lot of these um, anabolic agents are synthesized primarily either via a pharmaceutical company as a therapeutic, so we're looking at a GMP facility, or we're looking at underground labs where a person isn't davering on their own chemistry journey. Okay. <laughs> <breaking madness. laughs> yeah. So basically, if if someone was to partake in their own chemistry journey, we're looking at having a, a raw powder of the compound. So either that may have been sourced from a a chemical manufacturing company, most notably often in the Middle East or towards China. And what they will do there is they will pick, for example, a certain concentration of the drug that they're going to produce. So if it's going to be um, 100 milligrams per mil, then they may look at them one gram in 10 mils or 10 grams in 100 mils or 100 grams in 1,000 mils. 
So obviously, if we're looking at large scale production, more than likely they're going to be looking at liter volumes rather than small scale, yeah, ten, ten or a hundred mil solutions. So what they will do, they'll weigh out their powder. And because obviously these are organic compounds, they need to be dissolved in organic substrates. So the first component of it then will be getting the compound to dissolve into an oily carrier. So they'll normally heat it up into a certain concentration of oil. Filter it into a, another sterile vial. And then obviously there's the addition then upon cooling of a bacteriostatic agent to keep the solution sterile. Now, what can happen here is, one, they have no control over how the raw compound was produced in the first place. Mm. So a lot of the chemical reactions involved in producing a lot of anabolic hormones involves heavy metals. So we're looking at certain percentage of heavy metal contamination in some of these compounds which again there's no real way of removing unless you're going to do chemical purification techniques which none of these people are going to do in their, their shed or their and is that is that because it, the, the environment's not sterile enough or is that because they're adding additional agents into the solution because just because of the chemical practice of trying to remove heavy metals from from the compound would involve different separation techniques, which I'm sure none of them have been trained on. Okay, fine. So they're not advanced enough to do it in the first place, right? Uh, yes. I mean, it's a simple it's a simple filtration technique for removing heavy metals, but obviously, again, you're then looking at getting to more advanced chemistry techniques. Yeah. Um, so then there'll be either a certain contamination with heavy metals, like I've said, or again, they could mess up on the sterility of the environment and not follow aseptic chemical practices. I mean, we're not, when I was doing my PhD in synthetic chemistry, there was no need for having an aseptic environment. It was basically add chemical into this solution and mix that and heat it up. There wasn't any need to be wary of any bacteria or any other pathogens in my environment. Mm. However, when we're looking here, producing something that is going to be passed into um, enteric circulation, we need to ensure that it is sterile. So either... They control that via adding the bacteriostatic agent, but also by ensuring that they're filtering the solution correctly through um, micropore filters. Right. So they're, they're um, low molecular size um, molecular sieves, basically, which will filter out any bacteria from passing into the, the sterile vial when they've produced the oil. Okay. And then obviously then we have pharmaceutical companies who are full GMP produced in aseptic environments with people in clean suits and all that other jazz. So those would be the two contrasting methods of how we receive these anabolic compounds. Yeah. 
And in terms of the, the solutions being created, what's the, we, we spoke about before we went on the call, the, the measurements of what amounts they're putting in relative to the solutions is, is very important, right, as well. Just because passing through. Yeah, because we're, we're looking at, again, you're getting into concepts of chemistry, of um, coefficient partitions, which I'm sure none of these people have been taught about, mm. and that how a substance will phase between two different um, phases of solution, basically. Uh, and we'll get to that in a minute then with pharmacology. Yeah. Obviously, these are oils, and then our blood is aqueous, so there's going to be a, a coefficient partition where we're passing from an oil into an aqueous environment. If we don't control that, again, you're going to lead to either too high of a concentration in the oil and the, the partition is slow, or um, you could look at a slow release of the oil from the depot if that solution isn't 100% sterile, then we're looking at issues down the line with the depot sitting in the administration site. And by depot, you mean exogenous hormones, so the, the carrier? Yeah, yeah. yeah, the exogenous hormone, yes. Okay. Okay. So if we get back to the pharmacology, <laughs> <laughs> if we look at the drug input, like we are speaking there about the depot, so we, we either have... Liberation and absorption as drug inputs. Yep. So liberation would be how the drug gets released from its dosage form. So whether it's as a depot oil or whether it's a um, oral tablet, which needs to be released into enteric circulation by getting broken down in the stomach. Mm. So following liberation, we have absorption. So absorption would be the movement from the administration site to blood circulation. So whether it's from a depot on a muscle or whether it's from the stomach passing um, enterically into circulation to be metabolized at the liver. We can think of when we're talking about drug inputs and drug outputs, all these stages, they're not discrete. So it's not a matter of drug is injected Drug is liberated, drug is absorbed. Mm. It's a matter of the drug is constantly being liberated and absorbed into the body as if a flowing system. So it's always happening simultaneously. Yeah. So <clears throat> what we can then take from the drug input, and a lot of people will probably be aware of this then, is the, the bioavailability of something will be the rate and extent of the drug inputs. So something will be highly bioavailability if it has a fast liberation and fast absorption. So in that regard, we're looking at perhaps something that's IV as being 100% bioavailable. It's going straight into blood circulation with no um, time delay for liberation and it's going to the active target sites. Then after that, then we're possibly looking at um, Uh, an intramuscular injection or um, an enteric coated tablet as being the next in terms of bioavailability. So something like a, a, a sipinate or something like that? Yeah, like uh, we're looking at either um, sipinate, propionate, 
Enanti, any of the, the oily depots as being the intramuscular injections. Yeah, yeah. And the reason for that then would be because orally testosterone has poor bioavailability. If we ingest the orally, it gets hydrolyzed in the stomach and you only see a yield of maybe 5% into um, circulation. Yeah. So what we've done, what they do here is basically chemically modify the structure to attach an ester. And again, I'll, I'll get into this a little bit later on when we maybe talk a little bit more about testosterone and how it's yeah. modified for better pharmacokinetics. So if we move then into drug outputs, what we're looking at here is distribution, metabolism, and excretion. So distribution would be the process of how the drug diffuses or is transferred from intracellular to, uh, sorry, intravascular to extravascular tissue. So when when the drug is absorbed into blood circulation, it's intravascular. We're now looking at how the drug passes from blood circulation to the target tissues. So in this case, we're looking at basically a volume of distribution of how the, the dose that we've administered leads to a certain drug concentration. So whether that's a one-compartment distribution model, so a one-compartment model would be basically an intravenous injection. We administer it on one site, but it passes to all the body. Or we have a two-compartment model, which be more along the lines of a depot injection, mm-hmm. and that we're administering to one site, and then we get continuous liberation and absorption. But the distribution then is from that administration site to all of the body. <clears throat> then we have metabolism. So metabolism is the chemical conversion or transformation of a compound for easier elimination. So we're looking at now chemically modifying the compound to allow the body to excrete it from the the the, the body. Yeah. Um, and then obviously what follows on from metabolism would be excretion, and excretion is the elimination of the unchanged drug or the elimination of the metabolite from metabolism, either renally, so via the urine, biliary, which would be excreted in the feces, or pulmonary by actually breathing it out. So I'm sure some people who are listening may be clued into pulmonary excretion of a certain compound that leads to a disastrous cough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so that is excretion via pul- a pulmonary mechanism. Okay. Where, where obviously we've had distribution into the lungs, and the lungs are actively involved in excretion via pulmonary mechanisms. That's almost instantaneous. So that's how quick that's reaction that reaction is happening. It is yes, and it could be possibly because of if someone has followed non incorrect injection technique but has passed possibly through a vein on the way to um the intramuscular site. Yeah. You may get traces on the the syringe needle itself, which will pass into the, the nicked vein itself. 
Right, okay. And for those that don't know, what's, what are we talking about? Talking about Chamberlain. Chamberlain. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the diff- that's typically the fast acting Esther only, right? Most commonly, yes, with, with acetate. Yeah. But the other side of it then could be um, what's happening there also could be the, the bacteriostatic agent as well. Yeah. Because there's slightly a higher concentration used for trembolone. Okay. That also, um, the likes of benzyl alcohol gets excreted pulmonary also. Right. Um, so when we combine drug metabolism and excretion, we end up with the term elimination. So that's basically how the body is getting, uh, how the substance is becoming eliminated from the body. Yeah. And then we're de- delving into rate order kinetics of how the drug is eliminated proportional to its concentration. So in a lot of cases, zero order would be basically as we put the drug in, the drug is excreted out. But in most cases, a lot of pharmacological agents are following first order kinetics, which is basically that the drug is eliminated directly proportion to its serum drug concentration. So whatever we've built up in the the um, blood circulation is being excreted at a proportional amount. Yeah. And then what we can drive, derive off that, I mean, is a concept that a lot of people are probably aware of, and that is the half-life of a compound. So the half-life would be basically an elimination rate constant would be the technical term, but it's basically the time necessary for the concentration of the drug to decrease by half. So um, if we go back to the likes of metabolism, I'll touch again this uh, on this later on with a discussion if we're going into testosterone. Yeah. We're looking at a class of enzymes that are primarily involved in metabolism known as our CYP450s. And basically what they'll do is they will partake in chemical transformation reactions either through um, in the liver as one site through either phase one oxidation reactions or chemically modifying the structure of the compound completely for removal or phase two with conjugation mechanisms where we're adding water soluble substances to the compound to allow it to be excreted. So obviously testosterone, like I said, is an organic compound so it won't dissolve in an aqueous solution. So it won't dissolve in a blood solution or into urine. So we basically conjugate it to something that will make it more water soluble to allow the body to phase it out into the urine for excretion. Okay. So again, a lot of people, if we put all those five things together, then we can start to see where flaws are beginning in terms of um, dosing regimens where a person may follow an incorrect protocol or bro science of taking substances maybe once a week without taking into regard the whole concept of LAGME, of liberation, absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion. Yeah. So we can see that if we take, for example... In an antate ester, where the half-life is five to seven days, 
we see that liberation absorption is going to continue over a five to seven day period until a drug reaches its, half its concentration of administration and then follows into another period of elimination of five to seven days. But in this case, if we administer a compound once, we're basically going to achieve quite a fast initial plasma concentration and then that's dropping off slowly as the week goes on. Whereas if we play to the pharmacokinetics, we can actually then look at possibly a target overall dosage, but splitting it into smaller dosing regimens to play with the pharmacology of the compound. Mm-hmm. So basically for an, an, an anti, again, rather than doing it once a week, we may split it bi-weekly so that the overall dosage is the same, but we've split it into two um, two administrations. So basically if we were to do 250 on a Monday, we'd have initial peak following on the Tuesday. That's slowly dropping off. And if we administer then the same dosage on the Thursday, we're, we're initially what we're doing is maintaining a stable plasma concentration Monday to Thursday, Monday to Thursday, rather than putting everything in on a Sunday, allowing it to peak quickly and then drop off slowly as the week goes on. Mm. And again, that's where a lot of the flaws are within the likes of testosterone replacement therapy of using long-acting esters for patient compliance, but that's a totally other discussion. Yeah, because I said this to you last time. I, I know people that have been have gone in and been prescribed TRT, and they're on uh, an enanthate, for example, and they're administrating that every four weeks. Like they're going to be bottomed out for for three weeks, for two weeks at least. Yeah, it's it's absolutely crazy. And then I mean, then we could look at the likes of um, nibido would be a, f- a pharmaceutical preparation, which is testosterone undercyclinate, and that has a half life of about fourteen days. So you're looking at some patients receiving that every five to six weeks. So they may feel great initially where the compound is released pretty fast into circulation and then we have slow absorption and distribution over the five to six week period. Mm. But by say week four or five, they may yield, for example, a blood concentration of testosterone of perhaps... 900 nanograms per deciliter within the first two or three days and then by week four or five we're looking at maybe low 200s into the 150s and this person is then going into the whole low hormone environment scenario that you were there in the first place and again it just doesn't make sense not to actually address the proper pharmacokinetics when prescribing um active pharmaceuticals I presume it's just because it's cheaper and easier to do it that way, right? Yeah, I mean, no one wants to... Well, two things. No one wants to either see their doctor several times a week to be jabbed. Yeah. Or, again, patient compliance. Someone may just prefer to be injected once every six weeks rather than be, being told, well, you're going to have to administer this every every day, basically. Mm. Which should be the, the practice. But again, like I said, that's a whole other discussion. But presumably as well, having 
the hormone levels fluctuate so drastically isn't ideal from a health perspective, right? It's worse though, right? Uh, worse, yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, again, with um, some of the side effects with exogenous hormone supplementation, again, I'm sure we're going to cover this in a bit. If we yield a rapid drug plasma concentration in the beginning, then we're looking at being susceptible to side effects, so increased aromatase expression or, or 5-alpha reductase interaction. Whereas if we're slowly drip-feeding in smaller concentrations, it's less likely that we're going to encounter side effects of higher estrogen or um, higher rates of DHT uh, formation. Yeah. Both in themselves will have either health consequences or health side effects. Mm-hmm. Then, then the interaction with estrogen potentially isn't... I mean, obviously, there's negatives, which we all know about, like gynecomastia and all that stuff and potential water retention and stuff like that. But then from a perspective of estrogen's role in helping with glucose metabolism, androgen receptor proliferation, I mean, it's not all bad, right? No, no. And I mean, we we can touch on that later on. That is definitely something that, again, a lot of people jump to conclusions and address incorrectly Whereas, again, if they actually understood the pharmacology of the compound itself, so like we touched on there, better blood glucose regulation, Mm. um, healthier lipid metabolism in the liver, um, again, increased androgen receptor proliferation. I think at some point, again, bro science of you have high estrogen, you're at higher risk of developing gynecomastia if you have higher estrogen so let's bottom it right now mm. whereas if someone may have high estrogen we need to then take into account well relative to that concentration of estrogen where are there, uh, where's their testosterone level falling yeah so again we're looking at basically maintaining a ratio between the two because that's how it exists naturally there is a ratio of testosterone to estrogen in the, in the body naturally. What would that ratio be optimally? Um, if it's even possible to say. It's very, because estrogen is measured on picograms and testosterone is normally on nanograms. Um, if you were to take, for example, someone who was having a testosterone level of somewhere around 750 or 800 nanograms per deciliter, then somewhere perhaps around 140, 150 picograms of estrogen. Okay. But again, we're looking at assessing biofeedback, so whether there are physical manifestations of higher estrogen, so our nipple sensitivity due to interaction with um, estrogen receptors within breast tissue. Mm higher blood pressure from um, increased water retention, increased sebum production for oily skin. Again, we're looking at these physical manifestations as a biofeedback mechanism to address if someone has higher estrogen. Yeah. And only then um, being proactive in controlling estrogen. If none of these manifestations are occurring and someone has found that they have then like I said, again, you need to understand how that ratio is to their, for if they're taking exogenous hormones of where that stands. Yeah. 
Because the thing that makes me laugh is when you, like, the, t- the worst thing is going on a forum and listening to some dude in the US telling you what to do. And he says, oh, first cycle you want, two, it's normally 500 milligrams, which is ridiculous, but you want X, and then you want this amount of Arimidex yeah. per other day or per day. But you have no idea how someone's going to respond to that. So how can you give a general prescription? It's completely farcical, some of the stuff. And that's, that was what drove me away from a lot of the forums because you then just get into arguments with people when you're trying to speak logically. Yeah. Ideally, what someone should be doing if they are going to follow a particular dosing regime is to actually monitor within three to four weeks of the administration their yeah. blood work and see exactly what is happening within their body when they're metabolizing these compounds and then make educated, informed decisions towards the dosing, what they're going to do. Because me and Luke have seen this with clients where they've come, they've come on board as clients already using exogenous hormones with the premise that I've got to control estrogen, so I'm taking this amount of AI, and their estrogen's been completely bottomed out and the biofeedback's terrible. And then as soon as you start to pull that back, everything starts to normalize again. So it's finding that, you know, finding that everyone's tending to be overkill to keep safe but actually it's probably doing them a disservice isn't it yeah exactly and i mean if they're not making educated decisions for example if they were to take an an aromatase inhibitor every day that may keep estrogen low but then you'll have physical manifestations of um joint pain or the more common one is um sexual dysfunction so loss of libido And a lot of people fail to recognize that estrogen is probably more important for healthy libido and interaction than testosterone. Mm. So again, controlling that ratio is probably more important than pumping your body more full of androgens. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's, let's talk about the the biggest topic then for for today will be testosterone in its many forms. So... Give me an introduction then. We'll, we'll go in terms of, we'll go next in terms of anabolic, anabolic effects, free versus bound, estrogen aromatization, DHT conversion, et cetera. But give me an overview to testosterone as a, as a brief explanation and then we'll just start to talk about those different elements and processes. So when we're talking about testosterone, so what is testosterone? I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with what it actually is. But as a simple way of explaining it, it's an endogenous, so it's made in the body, an endogenous anabolic hormone, which again, we know has either effects on sexual reproductive tissue or non-reproductive tissue. And it's produced in the testes. And basically, it was originally purified from animal testes. So that was the, the rule of administration, as we see in back in the early 1900s until the actual chemical structure was elucidated somewhere around the 1940s mark, where it was then developed as a therapy to treat um, several medical issues such as anemia um, or debilitating conditions or helping increase wound healing. So from testosterone, we then yield a class of therapeutics known as anabolic androgenic steroids. What they are is they're all testosterone derivatives. So the the main structure of testosterone, which would be a, a chemical structure, which I'm sure people may be familiar with, in that we have 
three six carbon rings attached to one another. So that's known as a phenantrine ring. And then we have ring D, which is a cyclopentane off the top. So what we can do there is we can modify this chemical structure to allow it to partake in different interactions within the body. Um, so with anabolic androgenic steroids, we have two main forms of how we can create them in that we either form seven alpha metal methylated compounds. So what we're doing here, like we discussed previously, testosterone is poorly absorbed enterically. So if we take it as an oral solution, we don't yield high blood plasma concentrations. So if we want to look at oral administration routes, we need to protect the compound from first enteric metabolism within the stomach and then also preserve it through its metabolism in the liver. So within the liver, we, we have different um, passes of metabolism, where, whether it's first pass metabolism where the compound is broken down immediately and excreted, or we have a second phase where the compound gets metabolized and then some of the unmetabolized compound passes back into um, circulation. So what we can do is put on the cyclopentane ring, we can put an, a metal group, so a CH3 um, organic group. And what will happen initially is when the compound passes into the stomach, it undergoes hydrolysis, passes into circulation. And under first pass metabolism within the liver, that 17-alpha group is removed. So now we have the free steroid passing into circulation to interact with tissues. So it survives that first round of metabolism to yield a higher concentration of the drug within the plasma. Um, again, that's all through um, interactions with CYP enzymes which we discussed earlier on. And then we have parental 17 beta esters, which a lot of people are pro probably more familiar with and that they are the oily ester solutions. So what we've done here is we've chemically modified testosterone to slowly, uh, to basically play in the, the pharmacokinetics of liberation and absorption. So we're able to deliver a compound which has been um, modified with an ester group to allow it to slowly be liberated from an administration site. So basically what's happening here is that we know there's enzymes in the body known as phosphodiesterases, and they will chemically cleave the ester group from the steroid to allow it to be absorbed readily into blood circulation. So the main that's been studied previously when they looked at um, testosterone and nandrolone was a phosphodiesterase known as PDE7B. So what we can possibly deduce from this could be some people are good responders or non-responders to certain compounds, and it could be that perhaps there are um, steric interactions with PDE7B. So a phosphodiesterase is an ester, so, uh, sorry, an enzyme. So you can think of an enzyme when it's interacting with its, its substrate as a, a lock and key. But within certain people, the isoforms of that 
enzyme may not match the conformation of the chemical structure. So the enzyme may not be a good fit for, say, the likes of a cypionate ester versus an enanti. So a cypionate would be a two-carbon chain with a cyclopentane ring off it. So it's quite a bulky group if we look at the sterics of chemistry. Whereas something like an enanti is a, is a five-carbon um, chain after the ester group. And basically, that's quite flexible in space. It's able to conform up, down, left, right. It's not fixed within space like a cyclopentane would on your cypionate. So someone may see better plasma concentration achievement through an enanti versus a cypionate. And that's all possibly due to steric interactions with PDE7B. Mm -hmm. um, so what we'll be looking at with the main effects of testosterone would be either we have activation of the androgen receptor. So we were touching on that earlier on. Um, so we know the androgen receptor is expressed on muscle, skin, sex glands, and at each site we'll have different um, gene interactions then. So if we look at activation of the androgen receptor, we're looking at a concept known as a nuclear transcription factor. So to explain that quite simply, it's basically something that will pass into the cell's nucleus to basically encode for a gene to be activated. That's as simple as you could describe it. So we can either have nuclear transcription either through DNA binding. So again, that would be looking at a gene being activated, or we could have non-DNA binding where basically it's um, interact further downstream phosphorylation or protein kinase B would be for one, for example. So we know that if um, protein kinase B gets activated, it's a growth response agent. So it's a, a, a non-DNA mediated anabolic effect. Um, when they're developing steroids, so basically we have um, five, six, sorry, steroid families. So we can look at the steroid structure as being an estrain. So from that we can deduce estrogen or estradiol. Androstains, so androgens like testosterone. Pregnanes like preg, uh, progesterone. Glucocorticoids such as cortisol. Mineral corticoids, so the likes of um, aldosterone, and then cholestains, which we know as um, lipid cholesterol. They all share the same three uh, phenantrain ring with the cyclopentane, just with different modifications of that steroidal structure. So when we're developing steroids, we're either looking at two sides and they are the myotropic which would be basically the anabolic effect of the compound myotropism we're looking at increase in skeletal muscle size so what we want to measure here would be basically the index ratio of the compound so basically how anabolic to androgenic is the compound a lot of people probably understand this in more simple terms as being 
you know, a ratio of a certain compound, for example, could be um, oxandrolone or anavar would have an anabolic to androgenic ratio of say 13 is to one. So we know that is the the effects of the compound androgenically is slightly higher. So how they measure this is that they administer the compounds to rats and they basically measure the growth of the levator any muscle versus say the growth in a androgenic target tissue such as the prostate. So we measure the weight increase of the levator ani and we measure the weight increase of the prostate and we derive a ratio from that. So obviously if we want a more anabolic compound, we're looking at a higher myotropic ratio to androgenic. And if anyone wants to read into this, probably the best paper to read would be, it's called Pharmacology of Anabolic Steroids and it's by a guy called Kikman from 2008 in the British Journal of Pharmacology. So that will basically run through all what we've discussed previously about 7-alpha metal methylated compounds and the 17-beta esters. And it will also then touch into how we can modify the structure to yield higher myotropic ratios to androgenic. Kickman is a K-I-C-M-A-N spelled, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, K-I-C-M-A-N. It's a nice, easy paper to read. Um, Super easy to find as well. I yeah. Just type that in. It's the first thing. Just type in pharmacology of anabolic steroids. Boom. Nice. Yeah, it's a nice, nice, easy paper for anyone that's looking to endeavour on this route to understand the simple chemistry behind how they're developed and then basically understand rather than a bro science recommendation of such and such a compound as yields greater anabolic effects actually see how we derive that from the chemistry and biology yeah so talking about anabolic effects then so when we're looking at the going back to the endocrinology of muscle growth and the anabolic effect, anabolic effects of testosterone what what are we trying to you know super physiologically increase with the use of testosterone and how how is that aiding muscle growth in terms of the the interactions in the body so if we are going to plan on supplementing with exogenous hormones most people are probably aware of what we touched on previously and we have the direct effect of an anabolic hormone in that it's interacting with a receptor. So the main one being the interaction with the androgen receptor, which leads into gene transcription, like we said. So it turns on specific genes in relation to anabolism. But what people are probably not aware then or secondary to the direct effects is that we have indirect interactions. So this will involve where we don't have interaction with an androgen receptor. But that could be, for example, someone may experience increased wound healing when they use exogenous hormones. And again, that's not because there's interaction with an androgen receptor to yield a myotropic effect. We're looking at possibly increasing one of the hormones we touched at the start of IGF-1, insulin growth factor 1. So we may yield a higher 
receptor density of IGF-1 locally to allow IGF-1 to act on local tissue at a higher rate. So again, we're looking at increased wound healing. Or we may be blocking glucocorticoids from interacting with their receptor. So we spoke about the start glucocorticoids known as, uh, one of them would be cortisol. So if we can stop cortisol from interacting with its receptor, we're going to slow down protein breakdown or catabolism. And this is for those that don't know that cortisol will basically give the more or less opposite signal that androgens will, in the sense of it will get the body to start liberating stored protein. Yeah, exactly. And then possibly then the third interaction that we see indirectly is um, hematopoiesis, so RBC stimulation, so increased red blood cell production. So like I said earlier on, one of the starting uses of testosterone was for treating anemia. Mm. And again, I'm sure a lot of people would be familiar with increased RBC stimulation with other compounds that are derivatives of testosterone. That's why a lot of people draw blood post-cycle, right? Yes, based off their blood. Or RBC could be high or hematocrit, the actual concentration of red blood cells in their unit volume of blood could be high also. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 the increased production of red blood cells obviously is... Um, going to be mediated by kind of triggered in the kidneys right and is that one of the the reasons kidneys can be quite strained when people take anabolic steroids it could but also possibly that would be an indirect side effect of um increased protein synthesis so again we have increased nitrogen retention within the body as an anabolic side effect of these testosterone derivatives mm. So we're, we're expecting the kidneys to filter higher concentrations of protein, whether they are peptides or um, amino acids. Mm. Again, we're looking at further on as well and increased blood pressure from using these compounds from increased aromatase expression. It's quite a multifaceted model if we're looking at kidney stress with the use of anabolics. But of course, the RBC stimulation isn't going to help and then in terms of the actual uh, types of drugs out there that will stimulate that red blood cell increase more, what, are there ones that will have more an effect than others? We know from studies that baldenone, yeah. baldenone would be probably the primary one which increases RBC, which was medically approved for for RBC stimulation in anemic patients. Mm. Um, so again, I suppose that's one thing that a lot of people won't be aware of when they use anabolic hormones is an increase in RBC unless they experience very high lethargy. Someone may be going around with a hematocrit level of over 60 and not be quite aware of its effects whereas we're looking at increased um, arterial pressure basically their blood is turning to like sludge mm. and you can imagine then what effect that's having on their kidneys in terms of the pressure it's exerting when we're expecting the kidneys to perform filtration mm. 
And so that is definitely one thing that people should be monitoring through their blood work. Again, we'll look at this later on, probably with, for looking at the health risks associated with steroids. Yeah. But definitely increased RBC, like high blood pressure, can often not manifest in physical side effects. But further downstream, down the line, we may experience then the likes of uh, loss of kidney function. I think a, a, f- a future episode as well would be very cool to specifically do an hour or so on just blood work by itself as well. That'd be cool. Right. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, it's such such an underestimated thing with people today, and it's so readily accessible. Easy. Versus years ago, where you'd have to actually interact with a GP. There are so many private companies today that it's it really is irresponsible to not be monitoring your blood work. Yeah. I think I, I've, especially the people that I know, you know, we, we run blood work with a lot of people. And I even like just, you know, even if the, even if steroids and anabolic um, assistance isn't even in the picture as well, because obviously just health markers in general, but I think a lot of people coming from uh, a more naive background or more uneducated background, then coming into the realms of knowing this information, there is a hesitancy in terms of people, being you know fearing what that's actually going to tell them as well and a lot of people want to live in the don't want to know because they potentially know that that might be the result saying right we need to back off and and maybe remove this or maybe pull your dosages down and if it's a bodybuilder mentality like no i can't do that like i'm gonna i'm gonna get smaller like it's and then the whole yeah. body dysmorphia it's it's a, just a it's just a circle isn't it yeah i mean ignorance is bliss in some cases with people exactly. yeah. what what you don't know may not kill you but yeah. It certainly will at some point. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to it kills you. Yeah. Um, okay. So there's two, two words that are thrown out a lot. Um, and when we look at um, blood work as well, this will be apparent, but we actually spoke about this on Instagram. Free versus bound testosterone. Just give us an explanation in terms of what's going on there. And then we'll look at um, estrogen aromatization after that. Okay. So when we're looking at free versus bound Basically, we're looking at how much hormone is within blood circulation that's free to interact with the receptor versus bound, which we're looking at then are blood proteins, which will act as chaperones or transporters for the hormone throughout the body. So we can basically think of free hormone that's circulating through the blood. It could be then susceptible to uh, metabolism and excretion as well as interacting with the androgen receptor so what we have either is either the blood proteins that bind hormones are acting either as transporters to deliver them to specific tissues or as possibly an upregulation mechanism if we saturate the body with free hormone as a failsafe to actually prevent overstimulation of receptors. So basically free is hormone that can interact with the receptor and bound is hormone that is bound to a blood protein. So it can't interact with its receptor. So naturally approximately 97% excuse me, of testosterone is bound to a blood protein. Either sex hormone binding globulin, SHBG, or 
albumin, another protein which people are probably aware of um, nutritionally. Um, SHBG, it's produced in the liver. So we can see at what could drive SHBG up other than having high free circulating hormone concentration. So we may trigger SHBG production via eating a low protein diet. So that is probably not going to be seen with bodybuilders. But the two that we will see it within is having either high or low estrogen. So high estrogen will trigger increased SHBG production. And SHBG is non-specific, so it will bind testosterone and estrogen. The other side of it could be thyroid hormone. And thyroid, when someone is hypothyroid, so they have low circulating levels of thyroid hormone, the liver will produce more SHBG also. And isn't again... Oh, so I was one of the alternate names for SHBG testosterone estradiol binding globulin am i right i think that was one of the old like it's been referred to as that in the past is that obviously just saying i'm not specific to those guys i've never heard that but yeah and no, i can see why because we have then we have thbg which be thyroid hormone binding globulin which again is probably cause for another discussion and that people could have high circulating levels of thyroid hormone binding globulin binding up free T3 from interacting with thyroid receptors in the body. So we have these fail-safe mechanisms to prevent high circulating hormone concentrations. And again, THBG is controlled via estrogen also. So someone who has high estrogen could be hypothyroid. Say, for example, a female with high estrogen because of increased THBG production. Yeah. Um, how can we lower SHBG so we know that SHBG is produced in the liver? So either we can use pharmacology as a um, strategy to lower SHBG. So a lot of people are probably aware of um, proviron. So what we can do is administer proviron as an exogenous hormone source to interact strongly with SHBG and displace free testosterone. So just out-competing it? Yeah, out-competing it. So we're basically then allowing proviron to bind to sex hormone binding globulin and allow it to release free hormone into circulation. And that's where like proviron itself isn't a particularly strong anabolic at all, but people use it for that. Yeah, and I mean, if if we're looking at then cycle design, for example, someone who may be susceptible to increased SHBG um, expression could add in proviron, as to speak, as a sacrificial agent to yield higher blood plasma concentrations of a compound. And then, would you would you in circum circumstances like that, would you worry about the effect that proviron may have on their liver values as an oral? Or? But is it not so bad on that front? Um, it will put increased demand on hepatic metabolism, but not to the extent of the 70 and alpha 
mm. uh, alkylated steroids in terms of the hepatic toxicity. Mm. Um, the other two then which feed off SHBG, and this is probably for more so normal populations, would be insulin and your lipids. So um, having higher estrogen, higher insulin, sorry, is going to increase sex hormone binding globulin. So more so why it's important to control our um, blood glucose metabolism. So the higher our insulin level is, the higher SHBG is going to be. And then you can see this all feeding into a myriad of having a low hormone environment leading to all the side effects of high blood glucose. So increase um, a dip diposity, so increased fat cell production, etc. Yeah. Um, so again, that could be a baseline model towards obesity, for example, yeah. not addressing high insulin leading to increased SHBG. Yeah. Um, the other one would be as well as having um, high circulating triglycerides. So if the liver metabolism is impaired and we're not basically able to effectively break down uh, fats in the liver to um, efficiently partition them as triglycerides, higher circulating triglyceride levels will trigger increased SHBG. So the more, um, so if someone can look at basically improving their triglyceride metabolism, which again is an artifact of insulin, and look at towards increasing HDL, so high-density lipoprotein has actually, as well as cardioprotective effects, it will actually aid in lipometabolism at the liver and decrease SHBG production. And we can see in a lot of enhanced bodybuilders, HDL being severely affected. Yeah. Go-to messages for, uh, go-to go methods for increasing HDL levels. Yeah. I mean, um, only for we're administering exogenous hormones and we're able to dictate a much higher plasma concentration, you can see if we have a downstream effect on HDL production being low, SHBG is going to be slightly higher. Yeah. Um, There's one thing, because I know me and Luca spoke about it quite recently. SARMs and HDL. There's a lot of literature that will link certain um, androgen uh, modulators to decrease HDL. So the SARMs that are becoming popular now in uh, a solution form, why is that having such a, uh, an extreme interaction on reducing HDL? HDL? Um, it's not something I've read too much into in terms of moving from oral administered SARMs to injectable. Right. But I suppose I suppose if we are administering something orally, the chances of it again we're looking at hepatic metabolism. I suppose if something is given intramuscularly, the absorption and liberation of it is going to be much slower. So we have a longer introduction of the compound into the body versus when we take the the compound orally, it'll probably be subject to first pass metabolism and we're excreting out more compound 
than what we're keeping with an injectable form. Okay. So, so jumping back as well to the HDL thing, um, so, so short of ensuring like optimal insulin function and stuff like that, um, and dietary dietary setup, what what are your go to methods for kind of bumping HDL levels back up if, in people that have seen it drop essentially? Um, I suppose the easiest way to do it would be using niacin. So you know niacin's involvement in lipid metabolism. But a lot of people don't really want to partake in taking high doses of niacin, obviously, because of the flush effects. Mm. But between 1.5 and 2 grams of niacin clinically raises HDL quite significantly. Mm. But again, niacin itself can have hepatotoxic effects. So it may not be a long-term solution for someone to be using mm. all the time on top of then combining it with the risk if they're taking an, an alpha-alkylated hepatotoxic anabolic compound also. Mm. And how about things like citrus bergamot? Do you implement them? Um, yeah, I mean, the, there's quite a lot of literature on citrus bergamot. Um, again... I think when we're talking about cardiovascular risk disease with anabolic users, HDL is only one side to it. Probably what would be more important would be to actually control LDL oxidation. So actually preventing plaque formation and um, keeping inflammation low in the body. I don't think necessarily having low HDL is a bad thing if someone is not protecting themselves from um, oxidation within their arteries. Mm. I think medically the paradigm should be sort of changing towards addressing arterial oxidation and preventing um, LDL from being oxidized inside the endothelium to yield plaque. Because you see so many people supplementing with the likes of citrus, citrus bergamot but they're not taking anything to address antioxidant status within the body. Mm. And it's not only, again, what they're administering into their body um, themselves, it's what they're being exposed to environmentally as well. Mm. So there could be an increased um, antioxidant need from the environments that they're in or from the foods they're ingesting also. Yeah. As I'm saying, people, you see it so often now that the amount of... Uh, antioxidant rich foods and forms of fruits and veggies are so lacking in, in bodybuilders diets. It's probably definitely one of the contributing factors, right? Yeah, no, of course. So, I mean, again, we're looking at what we were saying earlier about estrogen, taking supplements to address HDL, in my opinion, is pointless if you're not addressing LDL oxidation. And, and this is where bodybuilders should be being started to, be educated on it's okay to not have optimal levels of HDL but it's definitely not okay to be ignoring um, oxidation rates of LDL in the body mm. and then again when we see with blood work LDL since it's being upregulated with the use of anabolics having that increased LDL production rate again if they're not addressing the oxidation of it 
is going to lead to actually more toxic side effects than being concerned over HDL. Mm. Interesting. Okay. So that if I was to look at someone's cardioprotective regime for anabolic use, the number one and two at the list would be controlling inflammation, controlling LDL oxidation, then addressing HDL production. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because again, if we if we look at it's probably it could be a podcast and all of itself. The the paradigm that should be being taught towards um, CVD is basically um, foam cell production within the endothelium. So everyone is aware of with CVD the um, cartoon model of basically a small little micro scratch in the artery and then that yields to um, plaque formation but basically it's it's chemtelite and if anyone wants to they can um, google a guy called um, Dr. Mark Houston he has a paper from 2012 and this guy has been revolutionary in changing the paradigm of CBD Dr. Mark Houston do you say? Houston, yeah, H O U S T O N. Yeah, um, I think he's from Texas, but his whole paradigm, and he he's presented this at so many medical conferences, and yet medicine are so far behind in their paradigm changes. But he basically proposed that when we yield inflammation or an inflammation reaction at an arterial site, we're allowing small dense. LDL particles from passing into the endothelium. Mm. So someone could have high LDL and it doesn't really matter because of if it's high buoyant particles, they just bounce off the walls of the arteries. But if the liver is preferentially producing small LDL particles, small dense LDL particles, these are small enough to pass between the single cells of the endothelium. Yeah. Mm. So when they pass into the endothelium of the artery, we have white blood cells there as an inflammatory response. Those white blood cells, macrophages, so we can think of them as little Pac-Men, actually gobble up the small, dense LDL. And in doing so, they form what are known as foam cells. Those foam cells then will aggregate together to form a plaque inside the artery. And that plaque then bulges into the artery to yield um, decreased blood flow. So it's not the previous paradigm that a lot of people probably think is that cholesterol deposits inside the artery to reduce blood flow. This new paradigm is basically everything is happening inside the endothelium and pushing in against the artery. Mm. And then at some point, then we may see another inflammatory response where that um, plaque basically bursts and enters into the bloodstream where again, then it interacts then with platelet aggregation to form a blood clot and yields a heart attack. Yeah, it makes sense. So now we start to see why it's so important to prevent LDL oxidation. Yeah. In that, in the first place, small, dense LDL particles that have been oxidized, passing into the endothelium and triggering foam cell production. Yeah. So it's more, probably more important to be aiding in 
um, lowering LDL oxidation. But again, this could be a whole other podcast discussion yeah. for CBD prevention, prevention and bodybuilders. Yeah, you should. Should we talk about, move on to um, following that free versus bound conversation? Just have an introduction to estrogen aromatization and obviously what's happening from a cellular level there, but also our ability to control that and how we should proceed within that. Obviously, we've mentioned blood work and, and data tracking, but like what, what's happening when that process occurs? Okay, so we touched on it briefly about um, estrogen formation when we have higher superphysiological levels of testosterone in the body. So what is estrogen aromatization? What we're speaking about here is an enzyme known as aromatase. And if we bring this all back to our pharmacology, it's a CYP enzyme. So it's a CYP19A1 enzyme that's mainly expressed in your uh, endoplasmic reticulum of your cells. So it's not specifically localized to your liver. It's expressed all throughout the body in all your cells. Basically, its job is to interact with androgens to produce estrogens. So mainly either estrone or estradiol. Because am I right in thinking that testosterone is actually the primary substrate in the body used for estrogen synthesis, right? It is, yes, with a minor amount occurring in the adrenals. Yeah. In males, obviously with females, we're talking about the ovaries then. But um, a lot of people will then basically monitor their blood work for 17 beta estradiol, which would be the metabolite of estradiol as a marker. What can happen is possibly someone may have an aromatase expression which doesn't produce too much estradiol, but will produce estrone. And again, estrone will have the same um, eastern receptor interaction as estradiol. So, for example, someone may be experiencing um, gynecomastia side effects, yet estradiol is low. Mm. And a lot of the conventional blood tests aren't measuring estrone, so they're probably better off getting a a three-way estrogen blood test. So, you know, estrone, estradiol, but the two of them then can feed into estriol, E3. Yeah. So what we can do there again, if we go back to our discussion on testosterone, we can chemically modify androgens to lower their interaction with aromatase. So we're get basically getting into the likes of the subfamilies of um, 19 nor testosterones where we've, we've modified the structure of the compound to prevent its steric interaction with aromatase. That'd be like Tren. Tren Tren or Nand... But this, again, is is where a lot of people haven't been educated enough in that we still see estrogen metabolites with the use of 19 nor testosterones. Just that their binding affinities for estrogen receptors is quite low. And also, if their binding affinities for aromatase is low also. Because, again, we're going back to what we discussed earlier on phosphodiesterase is, as an enzyme, aromatase is an enzyme, so it has steric interactions. And again, not to get into too much chemistry, but 
with the 90 in North testosterones, for, so the likes of Tremblone. Tremblone, what we've done there is we've introduced two double bonds into the, the tree carbon ring system. Mm. Double bonds, we know, are rigid. So, again, you need to visualize and space the steroidal phenantrian ring is alternating up and down. So it, the easiest way if anyone's listening and they've in, interacted with chemistry is that a, a six-carbon ring basically either sits as a, as a chair conformation or a boat. So on one side of the ring, the carbons are sticking up and then the other side are sticking down. So it's like a chair. Or we have a boat where both sides are sticking up. If we put double bonds into the structure, we're actually forcing it to actually conform to more of a planar conformation. And again, then we're, we're influencing how it can interact with aromatase. So what they basically were able to do is they were able to deduce the crystal binding of androstendione. This was back in the 70s, I think. So what they done was they bound androstendione to aromatase and then using x-ray crystallography so they're able to use x-rays to measure um, diffractions from the molecule and basically using computational methods to deduce an actual structure subatomically of that interaction so if we can understand how androstendione is binding to aromatase then we can look at how we can modify the structure chemically to stop those steric interactions. Mm. So basically with androstendione, um, the hydrophobic chains of the molecule pack themselves tightly. So if we prevent that um, flexibility in the molecule by making it more rigid, it's going to stop that steric interaction with aromatase. So then you can see why trembolone has very poor interaction with aromatase. Mm. Makes sense. Why people would run? Why people would like typically run trend, for example, higher than uh, testosterone? Yes. Two coinciding together. Yeah. Um, again, you can see why it's important then to understand the ph pharmacology of the compounds rather than just adding X, Y, and Z in. Yeah. Um, and then also because. Aromatase is a CYP enzyme. Its controlled expression is through a gene. So again, someone may be more susceptible to polymorphisms in the CYP19A enzyme gene, either through having higher expression rates of aromatase, so that may warrant the use of an aromatase inhibitor, mm. or they may have low expressions and never see estrogen side effects when taking exogenous hormones yeah. yeah and then the same can be said for um testosterone i guess testosterone is metabolized through a cyp enzyme known as cyp 1b1 and someone may have polymorphisms that increase its expression so again they're going to have increased metabolism of testosterone and never yield high plasma concentrations or be classified as a non-responder. Mm. 
I think then the other side with them would possibly be them we're looking at if it doesn't interact with aromatase, it's still not off the cusp and I could possibly interact with another enzyme known as 5-alpha reductase. So 5-alpha reductase is um, the enzyme which is involved in creating dihydrometabolites of testosterone derivatives. So we know that DHT, which they're commonly known as, so dihydrotestosterone, is actually preferred ligand for the androgen receptor. Yeah. So when we're looking at um, anabolic to androgenic ratios, something that has a higher androgenic ratio will be actually preferentially bound, will preferentially bind, I mean, to an androgen receptor. And again, we have three isoforms of 5-alpha reductase. So someone may express one form of the enzyme in a certain tissue and may not express it in another area. So again, we're getting into why certain people may be predisposed to having side effects of um, increased hair growth or hair loss via DHT mechanisms. And then we can look at, again, that's another reason why some people may um, take the likes of DHT blockers. So they'll actually um, reduce 5-alpha reductase um, enzyme interaction. So we have the likes of steroid or finasteride, which people take thinking that they are going to prevent hair loss or excess hair growth or prostate hyperplasia by blocking 5-alpha reductase from being formed. And they're, they're, they're at potential risk of kind of uh, reducing the beneficial side of DHT in the sense of the DHT plays a role in um, kind of organizing and functioning and the functioning of like the central nervous system right so in terms of the strength gain that's attributed to a lot of gear use you can that's by the dht mechanism right so if they inhibit that they potentially miss out on some of the performance gains they do and then also we need dht for libido function so you're going to again it's a it's a seesaw just like aromatase and that if you drop five alpha reductase activity you're going to severely impact sexual function the other thing that I read about quite recently, and I was very interested in, in it, when I was looking into the likes of finasteride syndrome of someone who takes a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, is that 5-alpha reductase is actually involved in bile synthesis wow. from cholesterol. So if you inhibit 5-alpha reductase, you're having a downstream effect on bile synthesis. And again, that all feeds into the likes of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because you're having insufficient bile flow. The other side of it then also then is cholestasis from the use of methylated compounds. So you're having this effect where you're actually causing more insufficient bile flow from either inhibiting 5-alpha reductase or via stress of hepatic metabolism. That's incredible. And also potentially the um, deficiencies in a lot of the fat-soluble vitamins and stuff. Yeah, I mean, that, that, is, that is one side also towards health markers that people never pay attention to really is their bile production, which is secondary to their liver. Mm. Incredible. Nice. 
So in terms of, if we jump back to the estrogen side of things, what are some of the reasons that people wouldn't want to implement something like a an aromatase inhibitor that would stop, uh, like obviously you would avoid a lot of the side effects that you could class as negative, but some of the benefits of estrogen that they might impact as well? Um, I suppose we're going back to what I touched on earlier and that, Again, they should be monitoring where their estrogen falls when they use exogenous hormones. Mm. And then again, using biofeedback to assess whether there is the need to add in the aromatase inhibitor. Mm. It's not something to just throw in for the sake of it because we, we what we've discussed there also, um, they may have increased expression rates of aromatase. So... Does that mean that it warrants a higher amount of aromatase inhibitor to be used? Mm-hmm. Which again will have downstream effects then on healthy lipids. So it's it's all a catch twenty two. Yeah. Which we should be making again, going back to the foundational issue of not looking at blood work. Mm. Running blind, so to speak. Yeah. That has concluded part one of guest episode interview number six um, with Dr. Dean. We've just discussed um, an introduction into Dean, the endocrinology of muscle growth itself. We delved into the foundational pharmacology. We talked about the the five key points um, of liberation, absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion. We introduced testosterone. We talked about the direct and indirect anabolic effects of testosterone itself, differentiating between free and bound. We discussed estrogen aromatization and DHT conversion. Part two, we'll be delving into clinical application, looking at dosages, recommendations, tolerance levels, and abuse. Potential side effects, both potential and inevitable for males and females. Steroid safety. What over the counter supplementation can we consider and utilize to control health markers we discuss blood work and data tracking we discuss tapering coming off or cruising the potential benefits and drawbacks of both what happens when we remove exogenous hormones we discuss the modern day pct and then the revamped version that dean now recommends backed by clinical research anecdotal evidence as well Um, so full pct breakdown full explanation in terms of what to do when to do it why um, and then wrap up of, uh, of total content. So stay tuned for episode two. That'll be dropping probably within the next week or so. Um, and yeah, hope you enjoyed today and we will, uh, we'll speak soon.